Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. Would you stand for the reading of the word? This is from 1 Timothy 4. It's written from Paul. Sort of a big deal in Christian tradition. Wrote a lot of letters to a lot of churches. And he writes to this young leader. He says, Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's one, uh, one last announcement I want to throw your way, which is on March 8th, it's, uh, just kind of was able to come together and we we're absolutely thrilled. March 8th, which is a Friday night, um, we, like last year around this time, are going to have a citywide worship night here. We're going to invite folks from across the city to come and worship. Last time we had 508 people here in the room which I know it's hard to believe we can get all those folks in here, um, but we did to worship. We had uh, kind of a big brother of mine in the faith, John Tyson, come and teach. And this year we have uh, just the joy of having David Thomas uh, and Austin and Maddie Woffer. Those names might not mean a ton to you, but David Thomas and Austin and Maddie, Austin and Maddie were the folks that were behind the scenes for the Asbury Awake outpouring. What happened in Asbury last year where there was just this overwhelming sort of what felt like the beginning of an awakening that has reverberated through college campuses over the last year, uh, all the way up until the big passion conference. They're just seeing these things as linked of God just coming near, specifically within spaces that are highly just Gen Z within students. And some of the learnings that they have, David Thomas is a doctor, professor there at Asbury Seminary and has some things to share of what they just kind of learned from that space. And then uh, Austin and Maddie are very young pastors who are leading a community mostly of Gen Z folks. And um, we're just uh, hoping that they, along like just similar to what John did last year, to stir up hunger in our community. And so we're going to spend a long time worshiping and praying. Praying. David's going to share, and then Austin and Maddie are going to share on that Sunday. And we're just believing for that weekend. Think of it like a little Holy Spirit conference that we're going to have to just kind of continue to not change the channel and what God's doing. So March 8th. And if you do want to register for that, that actually filled up so fast. We have not put it out to anybody else, put it on social media, told any other churches quite yet, except a few of the pastors who are ready to advertise that to you. Um, but if you want to just secure a spot, um, we are going to have to check the door this year. Um, I encourage you to do that. Same QR code. You'll see it on there. City gathering is what you're looking for. So this passage that we read, we've actually looked at before. And the beginning of this sermon, I've shared pieces of before, um, Watch your life and doctrine closely. This passage has come back to me again and again because as a young-ish pastor, um, uh, I continue to go back to this book and say, all right, what does it mean for me as a leader to do well? And then I think of it in terms of the leaders within our community, the 
60 plus like capital L leaders in our church. And then I think of the rest of us who are trying our best to be faithful in this cultural moment, one similar to what Timothy was walking in. How do we be people who are growing and flourishing, who are um, saving of, who are experiencing the salvation of God in ourselves and those around us? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says this, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and loving concern. You can put this quote on the screen here. Beautiful people do not just happen. Beautiful people do not just happen. Would you say that line with me? Beautiful people do not just happen. Most of us, and those of you who are here and who are followers of Jesus, let me be clear. I know not everyone's a follower of Jesus, and already, like, there was all this big holy language, and then you're talking to kids about sin, and now you're, you're about to talk about, like, being a beautiful person. Like, I, I recognize there's a lot of um, barriers sometimes when you come into a space like this. Um, but we are really serious here. If I could just talk to you for a minute, the rest of us here who are followers of Jesus are really serious about becoming people who look like Jesus. That's what it is to be a disciple, an apprentice. It's what it's meant, a Christian is meant to be, somebody who is following the way. We see Jesus as the most absolutely stunning figure in human history. And beyond that, we see him as showing us in this powerful way what God is like because he was God. And so when we um, talk in a message like this about how do we become the beautiful people God's created us to be, this is all from a place of grace. And so back to all those who are followers of Jesus, most of us um, start out our journey with Jesus with a desire to hear Jesus say at the end, right, what's the line? Well done, good and faithful servant, Right? I mean, that pops up in movies and media and music all around us. There's a song that just came out that is like leaning into this very idea. Not a Christian song at all. Like to at the end, hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. No one's like, nah, I don't want that. Like well done, like life lived, life well lived. This is, this is the, the, the ache of the human heart even if we don't know God, to like hear that in our own consciousness. You could say it like that if you're not a Christian. But aspiration alone is not enough to go the distance. How do we actually travel the long road and not fall off along the way? I know our church is a bit young in general. It skews young. And a lot of us aren't thinking about being 70 or 80 years old but let me offer this to you with just a little bit of pressure. You need to start thinking about this. You need to be. You are not your job. You're not your status. You're not your gift set, whatever that is. And no part of your status, job, gift set is going to last forever. All of it can be taken away, if not by tragedy or by failure or by accusation, but by death. This is going to be one of those sermons, right? You know, it's like Dr. Death is like a show. I'm like Pastor Death. So just... Be ready for my, my love of this topic. Someday, you will be really old. Yep. 
So this morning, I simply want to remind you that you have a soul. And that soul, if you tend to it and you keep it with Jesus, will last into eternity if you open it up to God. Many of you know know the uh, old school business maxim, start with the end in mind. Start with the end in mind. Start with a vision of your life 40 or 50 years from now and then reverse engineer and figure out how to live now in order to make that future vision a reality. St. Benedict, from his sixth century rule of life, he says this, keep your death always before your eyes. Keep your death always before your eyes. I've spoken about this so many times about all my death apps. I have have an app on my phone called We Croak. Three times a day, a little notification comes up and it says, Andrew, comma, you're going to die. Yeah, I'm healthy, guys, I swear, mostly. I have a new obsession. I think I've shared this once before. You can put up the slide of the, the skull here. This is what sits on my desk. Um, I put this on my desk and I kind of do most of my work before this. I pray prayers in front of this. This is actually not my idea. This is an ancient Jesus-following practice. Uh, If you know anything about ancient monasticism, in the cell of a monk, there would normally be a prayer bunch, and then on that bench would be three things, parchment or a section of scripture, a candle, and a skull. And the skull was not like a nice one from Etsy. It would have been like Brother Jarius from like six months ago who died. Um, (laughs) Seriously. They would hold that skull there to, quote, keep death ever before them. To remember every single day, don't waste your life on things that don't matter. And some Christian orders, you would dig your own graves next to the building where you eat. You would walk by your grave every day and say, I'm going to end up there someday. I'm going to end up there someday. And then, you know, have lunch. There's this ancient inscription over the ossuary where Christians were buried in the Mediterranean. Uh, and there's a couple pictures of this. You can pull this up. I went to show this to my wife last night and she was like, I do not want to look at that. So here it is. This is the inscription that sits above this ossuary. Where you are, we, being the skulls, once were. And where we are, you soon will be. Yep, welcome to church this morning. Like, how good is that though? (laughs) It's not meant to be depressing. It's meant to help us live. It's meant to give us a high awareness of the preciousness and gift of being able to walk out our days with God. It's meant to remind us that life is fleeting and that we're going to die. I remember reading Eugene Peterson saying, one of the primary jobs of a pastor is to prepare people to die. So I'm just doing what Eugene said. We will not care. You will not care how great your followings were. You will not care about, I don't know, some of the actions that took place this week or who you voted for, how big your job was. You'll care about all sorts of other things, these eulogy values that David Brooks says, your marriage, your children, your integrity. Did you make it? Did you waste your life? Did you act on all that God put in front of you? Are you ready to face him? 
You're just going to ask different questions at the end. Recently, I've had this growing desire in my soul to befriend folks who are towards the end of their life. I was at a pastor's gathering just the other day, and I made it a point, just like I had a bunch of friends and colleagues, and I just went and found the oldest looking, hopefully they weren't offended by that, oldest looking like uh, pastor that I could find in the room. And there was a couple of them standing on the edge that I had recognized from when I was much younger, and my dad would go to these pastor gatherings. I just sit with them. I just ask them questions. Because when you're older, you ask different questions. When you're young, you're asking questions about how to live. When you're old, you're asking questions about how to die. And those questions are about legacy. Hear me. And those questions are about focus. And those are questions about what matters most. The main thing that God gets out of your life, and arguably the main thing that you get out of your life, is the person that you become through following Jesus. That's what will last into eternity. Catherine Doherty in her book on Christian thought says this, there is only one sadness. You ready for it? There's only one sadness, she says. The sadness of not being a saint. And to be clear, because saint becomes this like big word. A saint is just a soul of uncommon goodness. It's my favorite definition of saint. A soul of uncommon goodness. Each human soul has deep within it a flame, a desire for goodness, for moral beauty, for sainthood. I really believe that most of us want to get in touch with our latent desire for sainthood. Man, to be somebody of uncommon goodness. I've talked so much over the last couple of years about Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, and reading his stuff because he just seems like the kind of guy who looks like a few of the other men in my life who it's like when they leave the room, people are like, bro, is so kind. Like, what, what? I just, I feel incredible. I've had people, Ashley Maxey, a few others have given me books and poetry of his and the more I read, the more I'm like, this guy is putting on a good front or he had become just a soul of uncommon goodness. A pastor in the Presbyterian Church who decides to start a kids program on PBS and speak kindness and love over a generation. Uncommon goodness. Can I just say the sanctuary? This is the need of the hour. The desperate need today is for a greater number um, of people. Like... Uh, is not, not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for holy people. We desperately need a new holiness movement in the church, one that understands being holy, as it says in the scriptures, as God is holy. People with be a passion to become good men and women who serve Jesus and his bride. More preoccupied with moving into goodness and health than coming up with excuses for why they are the unique self that they are. Because that unique self usually deteriorates quickly into, well, this is just my thing, my issue, my sin. It's okay. People with a passion to become a community of Christ-like love. We all know that so much of our world basically has traded saints, people of uncommon goodness for celebrities. And we don't want that here. Can we just say no to that here? to resist the algorithm and resist everything in our bodies that trend, like, pushes us towards celebrity worship instead of saint worship, not arguing for saint worship. In the Catholic and Orthodox Church, though, there are these saint days, right? 
You know why these days exist? They're not just to honor great men and women. These are days that are meant to raise the horizon of possibility for the growth and expansion of your soul. Days where you say, look at what Mother Teresa did. Look, look at what Sojourner Truth did. Look at what Maya Angelou did. Look at these people and how they lived to raise the horizon of possibility. So many of these people were so horribly ordinary when you read their life. Think of Paul's often repeated line, imitate me as I imitate the big guy. (laughs) Imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's not be perfect as I am perfect. It's follow Jesus the way I'm trying to follow Jesus. And you can be a mess in a season of brokenness and have some really like deep-seated stuff going on in your heart and still be somebody that is worth following because you are taking that sin and ache seriously. Ruth Haley Barton wrote, the best gift that you can give the people you lead is your transforming self. Note, that's not um, transformed, but transforming. The best gift you can give the people around you. I remember this story. I think I may have even told this one here before. Forgive me. But uh, a friend of mine who was sitting with a bunch of other church planters, and when church planters get together and gather around the fire, it's just amazing. It's really fun and a little unhinged. And there's this older kind of sage-type character, a guy who's been walking with Jesus for a long time. He was helping lead this retreat. And the way he tells the story is this guy had this, like, kind of really deep, deep voice and really just kind of loud, bombastic guy. And they're having this moment of, of like just kind of revelry around the fire. And he um, stands up and he goes, hey, I know we're having fun today around the fire. I get this. But I need you to know the threat that is coming for your ministry. And everyone's like, okay, all right, all right. Dial it back. And he, he goes on this <clears throat> rant. You're about to plant a church And the greatest threat is not Satan, not secularism, not postmodern gender theory. You, and he looks at him, you are the greatest threat to your ministry. (laughs) And my friend Darren's just like, oh my gosh. (laughs) He was like putting the fear of God into these planters. I think of the story when John Bevere went to interview Jimmy Baker, who was a celebrity pastor who had committed all these financial frauds. He's in prison, and John goes up to Jimmy Baker and asks him, hey, Jimmy, like, what happened? When did you stop loving Jesus? And Baker quickly responds, I never stopped loving Jesus. I just stopped fearing him. I just stopped fearing him. I met with somebody recently who was deeply convicted about some of the choices that they were making in their life over the last couple years. And they sat there with tears in their eyes and they just kept saying, man, man, I'm just such a fool. Such a fool. Such a fool. They've been walking with Jesus for a long time and just found themselves in a season. They kept saying, I'm such a fool. And it reminded me of that proverb that says that the foolish are just people who don't fear God. The foolish are those who don't live with the reality that God is there and wants so desperately to cleanse us and make us whole. All this to say, is it central to the life that we want to become that beautiful person? Maybe it's not our realest desire right now, but our truest desire is that we would grow in holiness, that we'd be the sort of person that is open to being transformed. And to do that is hard 
Because we need to stay alert and sober-minded because there's a lot coming at us. There's a lot of temptation around every corner that wants to pull us off track. I'm not going to read this whole list, but I want to throw it up there for effect. This is St. John Christensen. And this is his list of risks for the follower of Jesus. Risks of things that come at us that want to rob us from our holiness and rob us from our fear of God. He says, they are wrath, despondency, envy, strife, slander, accusations, falsehood, hypocrisy, intrigues, anger against those who have done no harm, pleasure at the incredulous acts of fellow ministers, sorrow at their prosperity, love of praise, desire for honor, which indeed drives most of the human soul headlong into perdition, doctrines devised to please, surveil flatteries, ignorable fawning, contempt for the poor, paying court to the rich, senseless and mischievous honors, favors attending with danger both to those who offer and those who accept them, sordid fear, suited only to the basest of slaves, the abolition of plain speaking. I mean, he just goes on and on and on. Put a little ellipsis in there. And he ends with, it behooves us then to be on the watch on all sides. This is actually going to be our through line through the month of February. They were talking about confession today. We want to talk about being on guard, being on, being on watch. This is what Paul gets at here in the scriptures that we read. He says in verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Be on guard. To watch is this word epeko in Greek, and it literally means to pay careful attention to. It has this idea of staying fixed on something. It's also translated as stay or hold fast. Launita uh, says this about the word watch here. It says to be in a continuous state of readiness to learn of any future danger, need, or error, and to respond appropriately. If you're taking notes, just put that, make a note of that. To respond appropriately, to pay attention to, to keep on the lookout for, to be alert, and to be on guard, to be on one's guard against. This is called watchfulness. It's a call to think about what you think about. One saint says, stand at the door of the heart and watch carefully everything that enters or goes from there, which sounds a lot like Proverbs. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Another saint says this, be the doorkeeper of your heart and do not let any thought come in without questioning it. Question each thought individually. Are you on the side? Is is it on our side or the side of our foes? And if it is one of ours, it will fill you with tranquility. Another anonymous desert father used this analogy. An old man said to a brother, the devil is the enemy and you yourself are the house. The enemy never stops throwing all that he finds into your house, pouring all sorts of impurities over it. It is your part not to neglect throwing them outside again. If you do not do this, the house will be filled with all sorts of impurities and you will no longer be able to get inside. But all that the other begins to throw in, you should throw out again little by little. And by the grace of Christ, your house will remain pure. This is all just standing at the door, watching and guarding. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Again, elsewhere he says, be on your guard. This is not about having a posture of fear, but rather about having a threat posture. A threat posture. Because if you're wise, you protect the things you love. You protect your life with Jesus. I am not fearful. I do not live in fear when it comes to my kids. I can say that confidently. 
But I recognize that throughout my days, there is a threat posture that I have in certain settings. Why? Why? I love my kids. And the same must be for our soul, keeping the end in mind. What it means when, Tim, when Paul says persevere in these things, to have a long obedience in the same direction, to have patient endurance, to do this, we must be on guard against the things that come for our heart and our soul and our family, things that are born outside and things that are born inside. For Paul, when he says then, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. For Paul, there's no doubt that salvation is clearly not a one-time event in the past. You'd not hear Paul ask a question like, when do you get saved? For Paul and the church, Father, salvation was this ongoing process. Yes, it begins at a point, but it's something that we are experiencing day in and day out, being saved, being rescued, being healed. It's not just a moment of pardon, but a life of deepening union with Jesus. It's not just about a change in legal status, but about the healing of the soul. This is to have a holistic biblical view of salvation. Remember, Jesus is called in the Bible the great physician. You don't just become a beautiful person on accident. We keep the end in mind. And when we keep the end in mind, we have a sort of posture of perseverance and one that leads us to be on guard and to keep watch, recognizing that the Lord wants to continue to rescue and to heal us. Now, how do we move toward greater healing? Paul first says to Timothy in this chapter, he says, train yourself to be godly for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. The first followers of Jesus literally referred to themselves constantly as God's athletes. That was their language. In their mind, they were training not to throw a discus or like run a marathon, but to become people of love. You will not just become a person of love accidentally. And this is then what they developed was a rule of life or a way of life or what we call our path. A set of practices that we invite everyone in our church into. Think of it like a training regimen, just like any serious athlete has. Let me pause here for a minute, because all of this I recognize can sound sort of exhausting. A lot of us are in a hard season, right? But a good training regimen is a healthy blend of work and rest, right? This is what they call in athletics load management. The most important player on the team usually needs more rest, right? This is famous like LeBron James sleeping 12 hours a night. I read a book on Olympic athletes and a trainer said at the Olympic level, the difference between an Olympian and a mere professional is not how hard they work, but how hard they rest. They all put the same effort in, but they, the really great ones take their rest just as seriously as their work. Our path, our shared way of life is about designing a game plan, a life architecture, a pace where you can walk with Jesus for 70 years. Don't be conformed right to the patterns of the world, but be be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our vision at Sanctuary is to form people out of the way of the world and into the way of Jesus. How do I grow in healing? How do I grow in this salvation that God has for me? How do I become this beautiful person? I have a game plan. 
Paul tells Timothy, have a plan. Secondly, he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. This is really simply put a call to progress, to being the same person in public as you are in private. We have to let people into our heart and let them see us as we actually are in real time. Paul says, watch your progress. Watch your progress. I had a conversation with someone recently who told me, Andrew, we just, we're just so thankful to be alive still to see that you have grown so much. I don't know about you, but when you hear someone be like, you've grown so much, how many of you immediately get offended? Like, what was wrong with me before? <laughs> it's like the first thought. And I just quickly like, wow, what a compliment. What a compliment. This is one of the things that was most moving to them. This person was like, it wasn't my moral perfection. It was actually the fact that they had seen me do my best to tend to my soul. And finally, number three, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. A lifelong commitment to formation to never stop being converted, to never stop being healed, to never stop growing and maturing. But progress, in Paul's words, is not made by climbing some kind of ladder to spiritual success. It's about climbing down. Thomas Keating has that famous line, the spiritual journey is not a success story. It's a series of humiliations of the false self that become more and more profound. (laughs) Lord have mercy, right? (laughs) This is Philippians 2, emptying yourself and being filled with God, following the pattern of the cross to death. This is a continuing and unrelenting assessment and reassessment of your soul and what's truly valuable in life. Conversion, being healed, being rescued and saved is an ongoing process that is punctuated with more failure than success. Is that anyone else's story? Right? Come on. More failure than success? It's definitely mine. (laughs) The Orthodox writer Tito Collendier tells a story about a monk who was once asked, what do you do all day in the monastery? Anyone ever ask that question? What do monks do all day in the monastery? (laughs) The monk replied in the cheekiest way that seems like monks always reply, we fall and we get up. He's like, yeah, yeah, what else do you do? We fall and we get up. Yeah, I get it. It's cute. I get it. Monk talk, but for real, we fall and we get up. And so I say all of that, the last 15 minutes I know of utter glory is that we must become masters in dealing with reality. Please hear me. We must Everything I've shared in this talk so far. You guys, we're ways out, so you can hang out. (laughs) Everything I've shared in this talk, hear me, is about dealing in reality. I wanted to take the time this morning because I genuinely believe what I said at the outset. We need a movement of holiness in our church. Keeping the end in mind. 
becoming the saint you were created to be, keeping watch over your life and beliefs by having a game plan, a life of integrity, and a commitment to growth. All of this is about dealing in reality. The reality that you are loved and forgiven, amen? Go back and listen to Katya's talk last week that you are loved and forgiven and God's for you and the reality that you've been damaged by sin. Half the room, I guess, is you don't need a reminder of that. You're already wrestling with so much shame and awareness of this. And the other half, I think you think you're probably pretty much okay because you figured out how to manage everything. I want you to see how much spiritual damage has happened because of sin. Ephesians 4. 18 to 24, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. Full of greed. Folks, I hate to burst your bubble, but not everybody is a child of God. It's bad theology. That's why we have a doctrine of adoption. Really simple. Don't let TikTok theologians fool you. People are made in the image of God, but people are not like God in their sin. They're not like God, so they're worthy of dignity. Everybody, because they're made in his image, but they're not participants in the life of God because of that brokenness. Therefore, they gotta be rescued and healed. The language of scriptures, again, is saved. And when they're saved, you realize how important it is and how deep it is and how hard it is to actually help someone begin the journey of salvation. It's hard to get somebody really healed. Look at the language here. Losing sensitivity, giving themselves to impurity, indulging in every kind of evil. There are deeply wired, habitual patterns of thoughts. And so a couple cool sermons and serving on a team is not going to get in there and help people deal with all the drama in their heart. Amen? Some of you are like, shoot. And then look at the work though on the other side. That, however, not, that is not the way that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You're taught with, in regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by deceitful desires, desires and be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self created to be like God with true righteousness and holiness. This is the real work. We can't fall into the trap of believing that we can fix ourselves, solve our problems, right? The great myth of progress is showing itself to be real in our larger world right now. This idea that people are not as bad as we think. I think most people are good. I'm like, they're good on the surface, man. But when you get into it, I'm continually surprised at how really, really good people do really, really, really crappy things. <laughs> to be clear, I am talking about myself. I have been shaped by our world. I need you to know that I know that I have wounds. There are lies that I have believed. There are idols that are in my heart. There are addictions that keep rearing their head around every corner. And then there are systems, right, that I and we all live in. Systems that are like bigger than us, that deeply impact us. And so before we can be transformed in the image of Jesus, we gotta understand the shrapnel and the damage that we have in us because of sin. 
And we gotta be able to name and identify it to help it make sense. And then we have to match that with what it is Jesus makes available. So where there's wounds, we need healing. And where there's lies, we need truth. And where there are idols, there's worship. And where there's addiction, we need God's freedom. And when there's the false self, we need the true self. And where our lives are defined by righteousness, where there was sin, and we can't take this for granted. This is the beautiful vision that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image in ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Most people, guys, live from sin to sin. They're not living from glory to glory. And this is why we have to become masters of confession. It says in 1 John, and this is the passage our home churches are gonna dive into this week. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim to be without sin, the scripture is saying, this is don't, don't be a liar. I say this almost every time we move into confession. As followers of Jesus, we're not trying to bludgeon ourselves or think horrible about ourselves. We just want to deal in reality. This is the rant I go on every time I get to this point, and I'm going to go on it again because there are new people in the room. I don't get why Christians don't understand systemic brokenness and evil. It's Black History Month. How does any Christian not understand the reality of systemic brokenness and injustice? We're born into sin, into a system that is broken. And in the same way we can look over there and identify, oh my gosh, there are systems of brokenness that we participate in. We have to look beyond just what is in vogue or we look beyond what we have a propensity to accept and see it everywhere. We are born into sin. And it's a fact, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. We have to deal in reality. And so to introduce the practice of confession this morning, I want to invite up Brittany Morose. Over the last year, at our Pathway course, which again starts on Tuesday, come I've asked my dear friend here who is an, quote, internationally acclaimed therapist. She told me to say that. Um, kidding. She didn't tell me to say that. And to share a bit about this practice that is central to the way of Jesus and central to her line of work. Good morning, everyone. I want to invite you for just a moment to pause and check in. Notice maybe what emotions, thoughts have stirred up in you as you've listened this morning. I imagine there's a whole range here, maybe from, you know, when we think about this topic of confession, we may feel nervousness, fear, anger, um, a little bit of like judgment or offense. We may feel relief or release or joy, but just check in and see where you're at and what stirs up in you. And as you notice that, just hold on to it. Like, just let it be there as you continue on. Um, when I think of the word confession and how it relates to my work as a therapist, that's why I'm up here this morning, is I, I tend to operate from this definition of confession as the shedding of light into our innermost being. Okay, rather than this just wrote, let me tell you about all the bad things that I've done and then it's over. It's, it's really defined by the light. 
It's the shedding of light into our innermost being. And in many ways, this is the crux of therapy. This is what the work is. It's a compassionate witnessing and holding of someone's confessions. People come to me and they confess the ways that they've been wounded and the woundings that they've inflicted. Okay, they confess the sufferings they've experienced and the roles that they've played in their own suffering. Right, and, and what I want to share this morning is that more than the coping skills or the tools that I have for my clients, although those are helpful, those are not the things that heal us. Those are things that help us, but they don't heal us. It's the practice of confession that sheds light into the darkest, most vulnerable, scariest parts of our soul. And when my clients get to this part in therapy, that's where I see freedom, peace, joy take hold and like blossom. And so confession as a spiritual practice is not the exact same thing as psychotherapy. Um, but they both involve this opening and exposing of something that's vulnerable in our inner world, something that I really don't want to touch, and my instinct is to try to delay or avoid or um, really kind of never get at that. But research, psychological research, as well as philosophical wisdom that has led rise to the psych psychological profession, have shown that it's this process of exposure that's the, like, the most critical part of any healing process. Dr. Brian Sharpless, he's a professor of psychology, and he says that depth psychologists are unanimous in believing that honest introspection, some might characterize it as brutally honest, and confronting things that are difficult are both requirements for being a fully functioning human being. Uh, Andrew always laughs at that one. Right, we, it's a basic part of being able to function well. And there's this misnomer that the goal of therapy is to help me feel better. That's kind of what people tend to think. Therapy, I'm going to go to therapy to help me feel better, feel good. And symptom relief is often a goal of therapy, but it's actually the most transformative experiences in therapy are the ones that really feel quite bad. They can be very uncomfortable, very unpleasant, very distressing even. But what I invite my clients to hold on to as they wade into this scary, unpleasant practice with me is that pain is not always harm. And discomfort or distress is not always destruction. But that's what we fear, right? We fear that that pain will undo us, that it will overwhelm us. But what research shows is that what harms us is not a distressing feeling, it's being alone with a distressing feeling that overwhelms our capacity to regulate it. Okay, what harms us is not a distressing feeling, it's being alone with that feeling. Scientists in the field of relational neuroscience are confirming this over and over and over, that being alone with overwhelming shame, guilt, regret, pain, bitterness, fear, that's what harms us. That's what prevents us from accessing a fully functioning life. And that's at a baseline. We don't want to just be fully functioning. We want to be vibrant and have like the vitality of life and fullness and goodness, right? So discomfort is not our enemy, but 
what I see over and over is that the enemy will use that discomfort to isolate us and make us believe that that's the greatest barrier to our healing. But discomfort is not the enemy, aloneness is. Okay, and just in case it hasn't been clear yet, the goal of turning inwards with such brutally honest introspection is not for self-flagellation or the heaping on of shame. In fact, the failure to confess, the failure to reveal the most vulnerable parts of ourselves is often the breeding ground for shame and bitterness and resentment, which fester in darkness. Okay, shame can only exist in aloneness. And I could preach a whole sermon on that, but I won't. And shame, rather guilt, won't harm you, but shame will, okay? And in my work, I've observed that it's the people who are the most stuck or the farthest from healing are not the ones who appear most distressed by their pain. It's the ones who avoid it entirely. All right, there's no movement towards wholeness that does not begin with turning inward to the parts of ourselves that we most want to deny. So pain avoidance is one reason we might avoid confession, but also some of us hold back from confessing our worries or shames because of anxiety. Because this fear that if I acknowledge it, if I speak it out, if I tell this to someone else, that will make it more true. Has anyone else ever felt that? Yeah, okay, right, it's not just me. But what I've come to learn is that regardless of whether I say it to someone or write it down in a journal or pray it to the Lord, whatever that thing it is that feels so bad that I've done, it's still true about me. Whether I name it or not, it's still true. That thing that we did, that belief that we hold, it's still true about us, whether it's spoken or buried inside. Okay, but when we keep it buried inside, all it will ever be is true of us. Okay, for example, if I yell at my kid, if I yell at my kid in, in a moment of overwhelm and overstimulation and I just, I, I explode, right? And this is a hypothetical and not hypothetical situation, right? This happens. What happens if I move past that moment? If I just brush past it and just keep going and try to forget about it is I fill with shame. I fill with thoughts like, I'm a bad parent. I'm a bad mom. I can't believe I did that again. Why can't I get a hold of this? I should be better at this. I'm a therapist, right? And that's the story that plays over and over in my mind. And that's the only story I'll ever get if I leave it hidden, right? But when we have the bravery and the vulnerability to speak it out loud, we actually are taking steps towards releasing that truth. It is true of me, but I get to release it and put it down and pick up the capital T truth, the deeper, greater truth that God has for me. So when I confess that I yelled, when I tell God, when I tell my partner, when I tell a trusted friend, when I tell my kid, when I confess what I did, I get the opportunity to receive grace, to receive kindness, to receive forgiveness, to receive reminders of my belovedness, compassion for my humanity, and the encouragement to pick up the mercies that are new every morning. I get a new story, one that holds the fullness of my failures and my belovedness, the story that holds the fullness of my weakness and my strength of my, my guilt and my brokenness and my forgiveness. And so whatever it is that you did, whether you yelled at your kid, you looked at that website again, you made a nasty comment about your neighbor, whatever it is, it is true of you, but it's not the whole truth of you. And I just feel that this morning, God wants you to know that there's more to the story. That's not the only thing true about you. 
So Anne Voskamp, a Christian author and blogger, says that shame dies when stories are told in safe places. Shame can only live in aloneness. Peter Levine, a pioneer in the field of trauma therapy, says our stories heal in the presence of safe and compassionate witnesses. So no matter what our stories hold, no matter how deep our sin, healing and forgiveness are available to us. That's a promise from the Lord. And my line of work has taught me that confession is the mechanism through which God wants to dispense this to us on the day to day. Okay, the practice of confession in the presence of safe and compassionate witnesses. Through our confession, we actually can embrace our wounds and our woundings, not because they are good, but because they offer us a path towards healing and connection with our compassionate, safe, and good God who sees our true selves beyond the muck and mire of our failures and our shortcomings. He sees us as his creations made in his own image. He says that you are good and beloved. He says you are good. You come to him with what you've done and he says you are good. And I want to be clear, this doesn't mean that there's no consequences, right? If so far this is feeling really good and warm and fuzzy, I'm glad because I want you to have the vision for why confession is so beautiful, why it's so healing and transformative. And let's remember that vulnerability and living with our consequences doesn't feel good. It does not feel good, but that's okay. It won't harm you. It won't hurt you. Being alone with it will. And guess what? The good, good news is that even in our shame and our failure, even as we confess the worst parts of it, God won't abandon you. He won't forsake you. He won't leave you. That's a promise from scripture. He says that you you are good. You are good. You are beloved. Confession can be painful and scary. I think when it's most honest, it will always be. It's an act of trust, too, that God is as good as he says he is. But oh my goodness, the breath of relief on the other side of that, as we receive the healing and the growth and the greater intimacy that lie on the other side of that pain. There's nothing better. God promises in scripture that we will not be met with judgment or shame or condemnation. Now, therefore, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. And maybe that's different from what some of us got from our parents or friends or employers, whoever, our spouse. Maybe the block for you is that confession has not been safe for you. And I want you to know that makes sense. It makes sense why we'd hold that back and that's okay. I just think too that God wants you to hear if that's you this morning, wants you to hear today that he's not the same. He's different. He meets you with grace and compassion and forgiveness and a story that there's so much more to you than that bad thing you did. Okay, he wants you to hear today that you are beloved, forgiven, chosen, wanted, and liked. And he wants to share that story to you through your confession. So here at Sanctuary, we have these practices we've been studying, these practices that are designed to keep us regularly engaged in confession not waiting till it all builds up and overflows and explodes, but to to regularly step into that vulnerability and being met with the love and forgiveness of the Lord. So we have, with as with the other paths, we have a base practice and a stretch practice, and these might be on the screen. 
If you're new to confession or you just notice that natural pain avoidance welling up inside of you, just see if you can start with the base practice. Okay? The base practice is to create a regular rhythm, daily or weekly, to write out your confession and receive the assurance of forgiveness in prayer and communion on Sunday. So this is between you and the Lord. At a base, this is what we want to be doing and engaging in. And then the stretch practice is to find someone to confess to. And and we really want this stretch practice to be something that's mutual, to find someone where you can connect with and say, okay, I'm going to ask these questions of you, and you're going to ask questions of me, and we're going to share together in our vulnerabilities. Okay? And, And through that, then, to invite a prayer for forgiveness as well. So we'll dive into this practice deeper in our home churches. So if you'd like some questions, I might guide that time with another person. Uh, If you want to learn about what a prayer forgiveness might look like, I'd encourage you to connect with your leader or join a home church or catch Andrew at the end here, myself. And so Andrew's going to come back up to close us out in a moment of confession. But as he comes up, I want to leave you with this quote and encourage you to take some time to reflect on these words, let them sink in. As you notice what emotions came up for you at the start, notice what comes up for you as you hear these words and just don't judge them, just let them be there. Just notice. KJ Ramsey, she's a trauma therapist, she writes, most of us fear the exposure of our wounds and the exposure of our deepest faithlessness will separate us from love. Speaking of the love of God. But she says exposure is actually the substance of our healing. The nakedness of our suffering leads us to the embodied experience of receiving God's clothing of love. The nakedness of our suffering leads us to the embodied experience of receiving God's clothing of love. So good. Thank you, Brittany. Every Tuesday, I have a 15-minute call with one of my best mates. And I confess. I do my best to tell him everything. And then he says, hey, Andrew, I receive your confession. Walk in his mercy, for you are washed by the blood of the Lamb. It is one of the most liberating moments of my week. Confessing to God and then confessing to a brother. The reason why this is so powerful, Bonhoeffer says, why is it that it's often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother? God's holy and sinless. He's a just judge of evil and the enemy of all disobedience, but a brother is as sinful as we are. He knows from his own experience the dark night of secret sin. Why should we not find it easier to go to a brother than to a holy God? But if we do, we must ask ourselves whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin. Whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution. Who can give us that certainty The certainty that in the confession and the forgiveness of our sins, we are not dealing with ourselves, but with the living God. God gives us this certainty through our brother or sister. Our brother breaks the cycle of self-deception 
The man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God and the reality of the other person. This is the power that Brittany shares of going to a therapist or a spiritual counselor. This is why throughout much of history, people have gone to a priest. I looked up, why do Catholics often still just they go to a priest? The priest is meant to do basically what Bonhoeffer is saying here, be a stand-in to make it real. It's not needed or necessary. But it does say in James, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Healed. This is our metaphor. This is our picture. To keep the end in mind, I want to be a person who is becoming healed. And confession is my weekly doctor's visit. (laughs) As a deeply sick person. Anyone else? That's cool. I'll stand here alone. (laughs) In need of healing. Confession is this act of honesty and courage of entrusting myself to the mercy of a loving and forgiving God. And so let it be so that secret sin and unconfessed sin, whether to God or to others, would not rob us of joy and would not rob us of confidence. That when we come to God, we would receive and remember his grace and walk in freedom and walk in forgiveness and walk in this life-altering, transformative love. Let us not become weary. Let us not stubbornly hold on to our sin. Let us become saints, people of uncommon goodness. Let us allow the free gift of God's grace to transform us and make us new. Let it in. So I want to invite you, put your hands out like this. My palms just open in front of you if you want. And if you just put these words on your lips, you can pray it out loud or in your heart. Just say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. I just want to give you a moment just to sit in the silence. Just to listen to the voice of God and ask the Spirit. Is there anything I just have not brought before God? a sin or a compromise. Is that an inconsistency that's drawing to your mind in this moment? And I just want to invite you to hold that for a moment. Name it. Say it in your heart, in your mind. If you got to whisper it on your lips. Let's not go home with any secrets tonight, all right, friends? As we sit, I just pray, God, search our heart. See if there's any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. prayer in these last few minutes of our gathering so that we would experience like 
millions of followers of Jesus have experienced before the healing at the communion table. I invite the servers out. This is going to take a minute. I'm going to do kind of extended version of some of this at our Ash Wednesday service. But I want to invite you and encourage you. Don't run and hide now. We stuck it out. <laughs> and as you come forward up the center aisle, we're going to all come forward today. If you would like, and there's no pressure to do this, this is not meant to be performative, but it is about just like fasting to get your body in the game. We're not just minds, we are bodies. Is as you come up before you take communion, simply to drop a knee before the cross and to give your confession. Lord, I confess. I confess that I continue to value my job over my family. Or I, I confess that I continue to look at images that I shouldn't look at that are robbing me of the sexual joy that God wants to bring. Lord, I confess I don't know the poor, I don't have a heart at all to care for those that are hurting. I confess my hardness of heart. I confess, you know, just trying to get you started. I'm not saying any of you struggle with any of those ones, but, but just to drop a knee and we'll slow the line a little bit. You don't have to again. And what people have experienced throughout history is the mystery of the communion table. It is a reminder of what God has done for us. Some have talked about it as a sacrament, like a thin place. There's something that happens when I take the bread and drink the cup. Like I'm, I'm like taking into my body the love and forgiveness of God again. I don't want to invite all you servers just to simply say to folks as they come up and take communion, just to say you are washed free by the blood of the lamb. This is Christ's body given to us broken. Christ's blood poured out for us. And so we do this in remembrance that we are in need of healing. Might this Sunday, this humble, simple Sunday that ran too long as it always seems to, may it be one that marks the beginning of a season of holiness in this church, of taking seriously our sin that we might take more seriously the love and joy and freedom and liberation and grace and power that God has for us anybody amen anybody amen amen would you stand with me if you're not a follower of Jesus if you're like heck no I'm not coming up here man please don't feel any weird pressure to if you'd like to come forward and just cross your arms and not take communion, someone will simply just bless you. You can also just stay right where you're at. Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you, as we wait in line, would you, as we drop a knee, would you, as we taste the bread and the cup, Lord, would you, as we sing, like purify my heart? I want to experience that burning fire that would burn me clean, right? Life is either going to burn you out or burn you clean, Lord, and we want to be burned clean set ablaze to be the sort of people of love and generosity and joy that you have made us to be. And so we come, Lord, just ready. We come ready. We come ready. Amen. Would you come?